Talkshow.com on the air, a new service of Global HR News coming to you today from Zurich, Switzerland, and San Diego, California. Our very special guest today is Chris Debner, Strategic Talent Mobility Advisory. Chris Debner is an award winning talent mobility thought leader who is providing strategic talent mobility advisory and coaching services to both corporate talent mobility functions as well as the provider industry. Chris Debner has over 20 years of experience in mobility advisory and has worked in over 35 countries across all industries. Chris runs his own consultancy for strategic talent mobility advisory from Zurich, Switzerland, and that's where he is today. And let's welcome Chris. Hello. Hi, Ed. Thanks for being our guest today on Global Radio. Okay, I want to get your take on trends that are seemingly overwhelming in the talent mobility industry. What say you about that? There are a lot of trends indeed. And if we look back into 2019, like the key trends that were to be seen, I mean, some effects of audit rotation, employee experience was a big topic for many. There's always the cost pressure in mobility. There is a trend with next gen and gen Z coming in to ask for more flexibility. Mobility needs to become more strategic. It needs to implement technology. And at the same time, in the provider scene, there are a lot of mergers also demanding the attention of corporate mobility. Good. Thank you for that. So what about differentiation? How can the companies be different from one another? This is a question that is probably meant for how providers have the opportunity to differentiate themselves on the market, which is a very crowded market with over 20 provider categories that serve the mobility function. And the typical levers there are obviously technology, which is one offering more flexibility and options. Corporate mobility appreciates to have more clarity and transparency. They also have a real appreciation if a vendor is not only knowledgeable about what they are selling, but also has an understanding, actually, of what talent mobility is and the other issues. And, of course, vendors can also support through creating better employee experience and creating better customer experiences. Two other points that come up there is uh, certainly social benchmarking. Everything nowadays is rated and you have the net promoter scores, which helps to make people to make better decisions with a social proof. And last but not least, consolidation. And, you know, we have the gig economy and there are a lot of freelancers like myself out there. So there are a lot of opportunities for providers to team up with business partners, freelancers, technology firms to provide a better offering actually to the corporate mobility world. So how can uh, providers create value? Well, this is something I made research in the past few years. I myself run a network of heads of mobility of the largest Swiss companies since three years, and I always validate these things with them. And there are basically six big value drivers. And that is certainly always the financial value driver. There's always a cost pressure. I mean, these companies operate for profit, so they look for something cheaper. But ease of administration is another one that everybody's looking for. And linked to that is whenever 
a service can provide less exceptions and has less conflicts, that helps also with the ease of administration. Then, of course, what is seen as a value for mobility is, is something improves the employee experience. How can a, a service, might it be a relocation service, might it be a technology, provide a better experience to the assignee and their families? And the last two are certainly, and that's again a demand that comes out of the next gen, which is the demand for more flexibility and more clarity. So that also goes for mobility functions who tend to be very busy, that when someone is more flexible and has more clarity in their offering, that this is, uh, creates value for them. And last but not least, of course, we know we live in a, in a world that was very much driven by highly complex compliance requirements, anything that lowers the risk exposure, that also is seen as a value. So seemingly there's a lot of consolidation in the industry or partnering, for instance, PwC and Fragomen, and most recently KPMG and Ayers. Would you comment on that, please? Yes, there's a lot of things moving, but maybe the most interesting is in the technology area. I mean, we heard you mentioned now uh, KPMG and Eris. It has become questionable in a very fragmented technology market for mobility. If providers who are subject to regular RFPs, who you want to change every four years, if they are the right ones actually to provide technology such as assignment management platforms or workflow technology for mobility, because that usually when that gets cut, when such a technology gets customized to your needs, and then after four years you face a new RFP and you may want to change the provider, all your customization would be for nothing actually. So there is a, bigger focus that I hear from the market on independent technology offerings. And independent technology offerings are out there from pure technology firms. I mean, the big ones are Equus, Ineo, Topia, of course, or Relo Talent, which are all independent players. So everyone has an API, right? Their own system of integrating. Am I saying that right? <laughs> I'm, I'm yes. Not Yes, it's the APIs, application interfaces, if I'm not mistaken. And what that means, and that's another development, that I see the future of mobility technology, that a lot of things that come out of providers who which help with better employee experience, with part automation and an easier administration or even compliance, they will be peripheral to other systems that run in-house, such as an independent platform or even your HR ERP, where there are rumors out there that some of them might include also a mobility module. When that happens, that means that all providers need to find those APIs to attach themselves to the bigger program that runs integrated in an HR department and a mobility department. So with that in mind, I want to ask you a question that relates to the transferee. While a person is on assignment, aren't they interested in their next job? Will they have a job? Where will it be? And are, would they be, or maybe they're already doing it, tell me, are they looking around immediately using the internet? Do they have permission to contact people out of their silo within the same company? 
about how can my new skill set that I'm learning on this assignment, how can that be applied for my next job? You're touching a very, very sensitive point, and I've heard that in the past that a lot of assignees, even before they go on assignment, there is a certain resistance nowadays that comes out of the fact that companies are changing and transforming so massively that when I would choose to go on an assignment from a large multinational, I might not know if even my department still exists if I wanted to return after three or five years. And that comes with a certain uncertainty, of course. At the same time, companies are strengthening their talent management and strategic workforce planning and also having a view on the careers of repatriating assignees. And I think this assurance that they will be placed rightly is absolutely more and more important to give them the confidence to go on an assignment and not seeing it as actually as a, a dead-end road. So the next gen is what we're talking about here. The next gen loves to be flexible and wants to self-manage, I guess. Isn't that right? Yeah, I I have a sometimes I do have a little bit of a problem with all the stereotyping that is going on and you can see that some some publications they contradict each other are they now really the ones who don't want to work hard and then aren't they the ones who do the startups and work like 7 days a week 150 hours and so the a little denominator that I've a common thing that I find about them is that they want stuff instant they want it now. I mean, we have nowadays, we have a Google, we have an Amazon, we have a Netflix where stuff is instant, where you do not have to look up a TV schedule, a TV guide, you know, to tell you what's on TV. You go and watch when you want. They want stuff instant. They want more flexibility and more options. That's what they're used for uh, being customers all their life in a, in a world that has a lot of customer, provides a super customer experience and wide ranges. And they are also interested in having more clarity and they are, they tend to be purpose driven. They want to understand the big picture of what they are doing. And that, of course, translates into a lot of activity on the company's side, on the employer side of how can we make ourselves attractive towards this generation. So in the younger generation, particularly not just young people, but the whole tech side of things, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley and plug and play is commonplace. So how do you view plug and play relevant to the mix and match of assignment variety and choices and things like that? Well, the plug and play, certainly, uh, that's this point with having things instant and uh, we not we don't read manuals anymore. Uh, so even for mobility, this means that you have, from the latest surveys from the Universum Global Survey, the graduate survey, uh, there is still, and the numbers have been shrinking, but there is still like 30% of graduates worldwide who want to go on an international assignment, who want to have international experience, does not need to be an assignment, which demands that companies need to do something about that. Now, plug and play, what does that mean? How can you provide such an experience? Best of it, obviously, with technology. And some technology is already out there that puts actually the, the action and what's happening on an assignment at the fingertips of an assignee. I mean, one such example is Benevo, which helps with destination services and a workflow 
when you are joining a company in another country, in another city, which includes social benchmarking and all these things. There are solutions out there which allow for more plug and play, but they are very much in, its, in, in their infancy so far. So training is constant learning is the rage, of course, right? Yeah, upskilling is certainly a big topic in the changing world. And there is, of course, the question, can a company afford to send someone for training purposes on an international assignment, which is costly? We see that with a looming economic downturn, that companies are hesitant to have these type of programs for junior employees, which are for purely training purposes. But then again, you see like some of the tech firms that you mentioned, I mean, they work with the, the cheapest approach that there is, which with one-way moves without a return ticket to give people an international experience. And if they're lucky, they get a ticket back. But they play with this playfulness, so to say, that some people are willing to do that, whereas the older generations would probably by no means go on such type of assignments. So when things don't work out on assignment, and this is just conversation stuff, do the assignees ghost? They just disappear? Uh, they just run away? I haven't come across this, but maybe it relates a bit to if you look at the fluctuation, you know, how many people are leaving the job? And if you have a fluctuation rate, let's say of five or 10%, let's say 10% with your local employees, the moment that you send them on assignment, that fluctuation tends to go down to zero or 1% maybe. And what's behind that is people are just afraid actually of going through the, the legal, legal situation of terminating a job while they're being abroad with unknown consequences of how to return home and so on. So there is not so much activity of people just ghosting or leaving while they're on assignment. So this X experience, <laughs> customer experience, we want customers to be happy so they come back and they don't badmouth us, of course. So the employee experience. In the old days, bosses would just say, these people are lucky they have a job, giving them this and giving them that. But that doesn't count anymore, does it? Yeah, it's actually changing around a little bit. I mean, applying for jobs, I mean, some of the, the future HR pe people who talk about the future of HR, they say it's now rather that companies need to apply for employees. And if you look at employee experience, relating it back to our topic, international mobility, they talk a lot about the moments that matter in an employee life cycle. And what is often forgotten, if you think about what is that moment in an employee life cycle that has probably the most significant psychological impact on them and even their families, that is certainly that moment when they are sent on an assignment, when they have to pack their bags and their family and their kids and go to another country. So when it comes to employee experience, talent mobility is a key aspect for one of the key moments that matters. Yeah, I would think that taking a marketing approach in HR, not from all the transactional HR stuff, but from the idea of employer branding, from the idea of communicating policies, engagement, feedback, relationship, rapport, that the employee experience and customer experience is actually a marketing function. Would you agree? 
I think in terms of the marketing, first, what before you can market yourself as a as an HR organization, I want to say, because the employee doesn't care if he works with recruiting or if he works with uh, if he works with mobility, um, he just sees that's my employer and they're sending me now somewhere. It's necessary that the departments are learning the mobility departments to go out of their silos, to talk with talent management, you know, see what synergies exist there, talk with employer branding and here we are in the marketing sphere companies need to offer international opportunities to be attractive to a new generation and uh, there is a big disconnect for example you can market as much as you want that you can that you are willing to send young people um, you know junior people on assignments the the figures the percentages of total workforce are still hovering around 0.5 to 2% of the total workforce of people who are internationally mobile with a few exceptional industries, of course, who have much more. But if you then see that your new hires, 30% of your new hires, and we're talking next gen, including millennials being 75% of the workforce by 2025, 30% of them want to go on assignment. No company will be able to manage that. And then it's hard to market something that you cannot achieve. So I want to change the topic a little bit here to technology, technology implementation uh, within the provider network, of course. So, Chris, let me ask you, do you have a robot in your office? I do not have a robot in my office. No. I don't either, <laughs> but but I, I'm just wondering, you know, I was asking this question the other day in our Silicon Valley executive network meeting. You know, do you have, and there was loaded with HR people in the uh, meeting, and I said that question to them, and everybody chuckled a little bit. But one person, this lady who's a senior exec in a tech company, says, I do. It answers some emails I don't want to answer, <laughs> and it processes some benefit things, you know, and someday we're going to learn how to use it more, she says. Yeah, I mean, technology is inevitable, and I recently heard someone say, you know, we will never go back to dial phones. Yeah, that's pretty sure. And so technology is also something that is inevitable. It will take its time. And I think the younger generation is easier to adopt it. But the older generation will also reap the benefits of it once they are open to it. So with the mergers and consolidation like Cervicardis and Brookfield, BGRS and other things going on, what about privacy of information? The data privacy is something that came up already now three years back, I think. And it seems to me that companies as well as providers do have that under control now. I mean, every company will ask a provider, do you have, are you, are you compliant with the, the GDPR law and other law, data privacy laws? And everybody will have to confirm, yes, we are. So there is not much talk anymore about this topic, and we can expect that this is the case. But since you entered now with the mergers, I mean, and you mentioned the two, my understanding from talking to people in the industry is that the Relo Group BGRS merger is just a takeover, which doesn't change much of BGRS services, whereas the Silva Acartes takeover is creating a behemoth in the industry and is two cultures that are very different merging together 
so that I understand from the mobility folks that I'm talking to who are using either of the two providers, they're, they're becoming nervous, you know, of what might happen when such a huge merger is happening. Well, we all know from our readings and experience about M&As and the implementation of or the communication uh, breakdowns, the number one cause of a breakup. So it's hopeful that they can bridge that gap. Yeah, well, I can wish for the best in that case. So with that kind of a consolidation, and this is just conjecture, but you know, just quickly looking back to the old days about referral agreements and outsourcing uh, destination services to realtor re- in the U.S., realtor relocation directors. And, of course, that's grown internationally as, as a DSP, destination service providers. Um, and people sharing uh, the fees. Uh, somehow uh, it's tracked and done uh, nicely, and it all works. So Cardis has had a huge presence not just for relocation, but the, the corporation owns franchises, real estate franchises. And so they're very, very used to farming out that business for uh, someone local to take care of that. That's probably going to increase in intensity as a result of that, that merger. I don't have enough insight actually to comment on that. I mean, in general, one fear that I have heard which is there, it was already the case with another firm who did that. At some point in time, some of those large RMCs, they realize that they need a certain size of a client population of assignees to be able to service them. And the fact when now even a larger one is created than already the largest one, which Carter's was, that some firms with smaller assignee populations, they fear that they might be quit by their RMC in the future. And I think that is a realistic threat that is out there. Fascinating, isn't it? Boy, so much going on. I'd like to change gears to your article that you wrote recently on eight building blocks of a sound talent mobility strategy. Now, this is all about corporate management, isn't it? That is actually about when mobility really wants to transform their mobility program to become more strategic and giving itself the name to be strategic more than just the name to be really strategic. There is a certain formula that I've put down in my article, which considers all those aspects of which there are eight that you need to consider when you are transforming your mobility program to be really strategic and aligned with strategy of your organization. I mean, let me just lay out here, what is a mobility strategy? A mobility strategy is comprised of the policies, the operating model, and the processes of a mobility program. And all three elements influence each other. And to define them, you have to observe these eight blocks. So does this relate to understanding why uh, companies are sending specific people to do certain things? That's just one out of the aspects. I mean, you have to look at the business objectives, of course, the strategies that you have in your organization. You have to check out with your stakeholders what they expect, actually, from their workforce to be mobile. Uh, You have to look at the different 
characteristics of assignment types that you have. Why are you sending people around, which differs a lot from organizations. And besides a few other points, just to highlight one of the key factors there, which uh, is really a make or break, that is culture to me. Peter Drucker said that, the classic saying, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And my experience, having worked all over the world in more than 100 corporations, the cultures, they differentiate mobility programs dramatically. Yeah, and that comes from the top, of course, right? It's hard to say not all culture comes from the top. It's, it's grown. It's sometimes a corporate memory, how things are done around here. But let me give you an example. I mean, in, in, in Germany, there are some luxury car manufacturers, and they're just a few hundred miles apart from each other. They produce similar products. They send people around for the same reasons. They sell it into the same markets they produce in the same countries. Their mobility programs couldn't be more different from each other. Unbelievable. For all the same basics, it's really the culture in an organization that drives completely different approaches. So when you say culture in this regard, Chris, give us an insight from your experience. What does culture mean? When I run my strategy workshops or policy workshops, the people have to make a lot of decisions. And since they have to be based on their culture, I give them a little help by I put a flip chart in the corner and I put four words on that flip chart. And those four words, they are a very, very rough description of a company culture. And that is actually you put their cost because every company has a different cost sensitivity. You put their risk. Every company has a different sensitivity towards risk or a different willingness to take a risk. The next one is the attractiveness. What does it take to move an employee in your organization? And also that is something that differs a lot. A pharma employee would never go on a policy of a tech company, which offers a one-way host-based trip. They wouldn't even think about that. And last but not least, also the administrative effort, respectively the complexity that an organization can take. And if you look at cost, risk, cost, risk, attractiveness, and administrative effort, that's four criteria where companies recognize themselves, where they can judge, does that fit to us? Let's say, do we give that benefit? Is it costly? How costly is it? Are we willing to take that risk? Is it attractive enough to move our people? And are we capable actually of dealing with the complexity of it? So I know some heads of mobility, they've taken those four words and put them on their desk. So because they have to make a lot of decisions day in, day out, and it helps them to make decisions which are aligned with the company culture. To what extent is this driven by the C-suite experience, personal experience of going on international assignments, dealing with family issues, dealing with all of that? Ah, that can be a positive or a negative one. I mean, if you have an executive who has moved maybe in his previous job with another company and had a good experience with a good mobility team, he will measure his now, his mobility team now based on his experience from his previous firm. You might have someone who has never been moved and they are still in the majority, I think, in a lot of leadership teams that they do not necessarily all come with the international experience. And then they might have a, a very wrong perception of what's happening in mobility and not seeing the complexity of talent mobility and neither understanding why it costs so much. Yeah. So the old days uh, go on an international assignment and make a lot of money. 
that doesn't work anymore, does it? That's long gone. That's long gone. Companies are looking for ways to make it cheaper and cheaper. I still see these exceptions in some markets where if it comes to move a CEO or any C-level employee, the exceptions are running into the thousands and uh, they still get everything they need. But otherwise, I see a constant trend over the last two decades that an assignment is not anymore the way to make money. But I agree, it used to be. So in these, let's just say these two German car manufacturers with a differential, yeah, I, I assume they're male-oriented, right? That comes natural with the industry, with the automotive industry. But the efforts actually for more gender equality, there are to be seen everywhere. And efforts, especially, I mean, out of the Europeans' uh, point of view, there are a lot of efforts done, actually, of uh, bringing not only more women into leadership positions, but also on assignments. Diversity is a, is a key topic here as well. Yeah. So what about instead of relocation of people, is there a greater future from your view? Is there a greater future of not relocating people, but rather than relocating people to the work, move the work to where the people already are? See, this discussion came up when uh, I think about 10 years back, or I might be mistaken, it might be 12 or 8, when, when, for example, Skype came up. I mean, people were shouting, oh, my God, this is the end of assignments. You know, we can now see each other. And uh, so uh, the end of business travel was even proclaimed. And if you look at what we all have now, Uber conference, Zoom, whatsoever, all these virtual working opportunities where you can have whole teams seeing each other over the Internet at the same time, Business travel in the last five years has tripled globally. So I don't see that technology is really, really able to reduce the number of international travel and also international assignments. This has really been fascinating time for me and for the audience too. So let's just do a quick summary here about global mobility strategy. Does that come, or do you think it will further evolve as the mobility leader within a company is perhaps more executive and tied in with the talent pipeline, talent development? I think it's an imperative for mobility functions if they, they don't want to be marginalized and, and outsourced or you know belittled, that they do some efforts, actually to go out of their silo, to show their strategic contribution to the rest of the organization. I can give you an example, and that was I, I recently I brought together heads of HR and heads of reward in a meeting together with heads of mobility. And we discussed ways of what could be done in a better way that, the, that they could better work together and that more synergies could be created. And it was fantastic what they came up with. I mean, the ideas. They all circled around involving mobility earlier into the whole process of assigning someone, so integrating them into a talent management process. And the other big point was the perception of mobility among the other HR functions, because it seems to be a real blind spot. They think that's the travel agent or whatever that is, or they're, they're just shipping the containers of the people. They have no insights into the complexity and uh, the effort 
that mobility has is really doing day in day out and so there is a lot of scope for improvement becoming more strategic once when mobility manages to market themselves within their organizations to show what a strategic contribution they are delivering so this all goes to talent workforce management workforce policy workforce strategy and that's a c suite thing and then flows down or across the organization but isn't it so that when a person is sent on assignment it changes the organization because somebody is moved out of a place of work or a role and put into a, another place so it's all about change management isn't it i would believe that this is something that companies learn to cope with and even more need to learn to cope with talent mobility is already a word that is used also for moving people domestically even in the same office from one position to another position yeah. so you will have to offer that i heard some graduates telling me i will anyway not work for longer than 3 years for a company and then i want to change and one very cocky one said and i'm not speaking for myself actually my my friends are all saying the same thing so if you hear that alarm bells must be ringing i mean how can we retain people how can we build up experience in our organization and the idea that some companies are realizing is that you have to stop thinking those linear career progressions think about moving them around between different functions give them another opportunity after 2 or 3 years so you're talking about a talent mobility that does not necessarily even cross borders which might in the future mean when there some organizational development guys they they foresee the end of centers of excellence that would be also the end of a mobility department as it exists nowadays very often that you are in one big talent management function where you manage your talent where it's needed and where it wants to work and where you can retain it and the moment that it goes across a border that's when you involve your colleague two desks further who is in charge of uh, handling actually then the processes that are needed to send that person across a border so in our silicon valley meeting last week we had a vp learning from a large electrical manufacturing company and a change management expert were discussing in front of the room workforce planning talent acquisition talent pipeline employee development and they defined their workforce non-core core key and strategic and in defining strategic those are the people or the functions that were slated for foreign assignment international assignment and then there are key employee or the key function and that they said I'm reading my notes here is centered around a one-year workforce plan for that person. And then you have a core employee and that's more or less day-to-day -day, and then non-core and those are gig workers or outsource. So now that's workforce planning and so I'm still trying to get my head around it perhaps you can jump in here and tell me what you think about that approach and defining what and who is strategic and who isn't. I think again every strategic workforce planner who has worked for more than one company will admit that every company is unique and you have a completely different planning even a planning different planning horizon in in different industries and different companies. I mean you can't compare for example a 
a pharma engineer who is sent to develop like something. You cannot plan him for a year. I mean, he needs to, after a year, he probably understands what he has to research on. The oil and gas industry or the metals and mining industry, again, very different cycles. And you don't send only strategic people. Sometimes you, you send the one who can, who can deal with a hammer and a nail because he knows how to deal with that. Very individual company by company. Also the definition of what is strategic and what is not. I worked with one company, again, a little example there. We wanted to differentiate the policies to have one for the strategic moves and one for the non-strategic moves. And then someone made an, made an interesting remark and said, in our organization, everybody feels that they are strategic. And, and that was the end of the story. I mean, if you have such a misunderstanding, a culture in the organization where everybody feels that they are strategic, you cannot differentiate policies in a way that the people wouldn't understand. Again, this uniqueness of companies should never be forgotten. And then you can use the techniques and tools of a workforce planning and a talent management and an employer branding and talent acquisition together to work in unison, but very much dependent on an organization. Some say now that there is an end to benchmarking because they say it's you can't benchmark anymore because companies are too different. Fascinating. So, Chris, about this article that you published, you had this beautiful picture of the Swiss Alps. And where was that picture taken? Oh, that was the Kurfürsten, which is in the canton of St. Gaul. It's a line of mountains. And I, I chose them because the article is eight building blocks of a talent mobility strategy. And, and they have like eight peaks I mean, some argue that they would have nine peaks, but I, get, I went with the eight peaks explanation. Yeah. No, it's just a gorgeous picture. Wow. So people can contact you at www.chrisdebter, that's D-E-B-N-E-R, chrisdebter.com. And also I see that you have another website, pickmybrainpaymylunch.com. That is so cute. Yeah, that's an initiative I, I came up with one and a half years. How I came up with that description is on the website. But Pick My Brain, Pay My Lunch is, is really to share my expertise with people who take me out for lunch. And it works brilliant. I've had no disappointed, unless sometimes the food wasn't that good. But I had no disappointed people who, who joined me for lunch. And it's a concept that brings people together, that creates synergies. There's always a follow-up. And so far, projects where one business was done, people found new jobs, and so on and so forth. So it's a concept that works. Well, we've been talking with Chris Debner from Zurich, Switzerland. Chris, you could tell, is an award-winning talent mobility thought leader who is providing <laughs> strategic global mobility advisory and coaching services to both corporate talent mobility functions as well as to the provider industry. Chris, thanks for being our guest today on Global Radio. My pleasure, Ed. Okay, it's Ed Cohen signing off from San Diego, California, and that was Chris Debner in Zurich, Switzerland. Take care, be well, and Merry Christmas to you. I think to myself